We're going to be looking in the Gospel of Mark today, continuing on in our series, a message I call today, Jesus and the Hypocrites, Mark chapter 12 and verse 13. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one. But you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. On Sunday morning, Jesus entered into the city of Jerusalem riding on the foal of a donkey. To the praise and shouts of the crowd of thousands that accompanied him in that great pilgrimage. Ended up in the temple at that prophetic moment. Looked around, the Bible says, and left. That was Sunday. On Monday, Jesus got up and saw a fig tree. And he went to it to obtain fruit and it had none and he cursed it. He went into the temple then and let's just say he cleaned house. Can we say that? I mean, he, he dealt with all of the mess that was there, preached a sermon all over that place that day. He left. Tuesday then began with him seeing the fig tree that he had cursed the day before. Now the disciples said, look, it's dried up from the roots. Dead as it could be. He went into the temple and he was met by a delegation we saw last week. From the Sanhedrin Council, which means the 70, the high court of Judaism. It was an official inquiry. Who told you you could do this? By what authority do you do this? And we saw again uh, that, that incredible thing. You know, Jesus never asked permission. Not one time in his entire life. That's recorded for us in Scripture. Never. He moved by his own authority. Now we find him later on. And it's still Tuesday. Still Tuesday. And now here is this other group of people. The Bible identifies them as the, the scribes and the Pharisees. With a very interesting group thrown in of all people to come with the Pharisees, the Herodians. A group in Herod, King Herod's inner circle. They bring to him a couple of issues. Now remember it's Tuesday. On Thursday, to put it in, just to remind us of the power of the Sanhedrin Council, on Thursday night, Jesus, our Thursday night, it was their Friday, but our Thursday night, Jesus was going to be arrested and tried by that very same court for blasphemy and found guilty. That's Thursday. This is Tuesday when he receives that delegation 
And now of all people, the Pharisees and the Herodians come to him and they bring this issue of taxation. Another group would come bringing to him the issue of the resurrection. These were two of the hottest of all hot topics in Jerusalem in his day. Should we pay taxes to Caesar? Is there a resurrection from the dead? Controversial topics, hot topics, questions very carefully worded and put together by hypocrites. They weren't interested in really getting the answers. They were just trying to trap Jesus. He knew all along what was in their hearts. So we'll consider this morning these two issues that came to Jesus on Tuesday of all times. Taxes and the resurrection. Verse 13, they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. And when they come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you're true, care about no one. You do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Now that is a complimentary statement that they're making. What they're saying to Jesus was, we know that you speak the truth. You don't uh, regard the person of any man. You're going to speak the truth. You don't, you're not worried about who it offends. You'll speak the truth to anybody, anywhere, anytime. We know that's the kind of person that you are. But Jesus was dealing with hypocrites. And they were hypocrites, first of all, because of all people, the Pharisees came with the Herodians. Now, the Pharisees were the ultra, ultra religious conservatives of their day. There was nobody anywhere any more conservative than the Pharisees were. And they hated Herod and they hated the Herodians. The Herodians Uh, Herod had spies everywhere. The Herodians were aligned with King Herod. Uh, So whatever they heard or saw, they were going to report straight to King Herod. Uh, These were Herod's inner circle of all people then coming with the Pharisees. Uh, Interestingly, Jesus really only addressed Herod specifically one time, and that was in Luke chapter 13, verse 31. On that very day, some Pharisees came saying to him, Get out and depart from here, for Herod wants to kill you. This was when Jesus was still up in Herod's territory, which was in Galilee. He said to him, Jesus said to the Pharisees who warned him, You know, hey, Herod's trying to kill you. He said to them, You go tell that fox. That's not a compliment. You go tell that fox, Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow and the third day I shall be perfected. Uh, uh, But he did leave and he gave, in fact, the explanation. He said, uh, it's not right that any prophet should die anywhere except Jerusalem. It's kind of ironic. Jesus knew where he was going to die. Now these Pharisees in Jerusalem partnered up with this delegation from Herod and they have a simple plan to trap Jesus by asking him about the hated taxes paid to the Romans. Now we know about the tax collectors. We see them all over the New Testament. They're called publicans, not republicans. Don't get that confused. Publicans. 
They were tax collectors. They were collaborators with the Roman occupational forces. They were aligned with Herod and with the Roman governors, whoever they were. They conducted a tax racket because they could charge whatever they wanted and the Romans let them get away with it. They were kind of the collection agency and they charged then exorbitant fees to the people. Uh, They had to pay it. Uh, for the collection of the taxes paid to Rome. Now I mention this only to remind you that the taxation system in Judea during this time was not just hated, it was corrupt to the core. It was corrupt. The publicans were notorious for the way that they were treating people. It was a tax racket, they used it ruthlessly. Pharisees then knew that Jesus had confronted the money changers and how that they were fleecing the people by using the payment of the temple tax. The temple taxes by the Jewish males that they owed, they all had to pay it. They could not pay that with foreign money. They had to exchange it for temple money. And of course the rate was robbery. It was pure robbery. So they knew that Jesus had confronted that. They knew that he had confronted the system whereby they were selling those sacrificial animals at exorbitant prices and again fleecing the pilgrims. So Jesus had confronted the corruption in his temple by saying, and he told them, you've made my house a den of thieves. So you kind of see how ingenious this response was. Okay, Jesus. You don't care who you offend. You're certainly capable of speaking truth to corruption. You called us out for the racket going on in the temple. So what about this taxation deal? What are you going to do about it? You know how corrupt this is. And it was corrupt. You know how wrong it is. It was wrong. You know how horrible it was that these men were using their power and authority to enrich themselves. Yes, Jesus knew all about it. So what are you going to do about this? Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? It's interesting that Jesus never said much about the Romans. And he said very precious little about the murderous, adulterous, incestuous, crafty, and sneaky Herod. Just very, he just said little to him. Now John the Baptist... John the Baptist did. Jesus didn't. So by putting Jesus in this position, you see, they were putting him in a a place where he was going to do something that was exactly what they thought he was going to do, what they wanted him to do. This was going to push him in a position where he would confront the Romans and, and deal with the Romans. But Jesus didn't do a bit of it. You remember this morning, Jesus could have dealt with the Romans and completely destroyed them, annihilated them, and nobody would have even had to have pulled their sword out of its sheath. He could have spoken the word and every Roman in Jerusalem would have been as dead as that fig tree that he had cursed the day before. He could have. Just with the word. He didn't do it. The Romans were cruel, idolatrous people. The Caesars were notorious. The tax system was corrupt. When they brought it to Jesus, they framed their whole discussion around that question. Verse 15, shall we pay 
or shall we not pay? But Jesus knew they were doing this, not because they were concerned about the corruption of the, uh, of the taxation system, although make no mistake, they hated having to pay it, and they hated the way they were being taken advantage of. Certainly they did, but that wasn't what they were bringing this to Jesus for. They were bringing it to Jesus to trap him. It's a good time for us to remember that one of the characteristics of dealing with complex issues is that people love to put us, you, me, on the spot by framing things in only one of two ways. It's got to be this way or this way. This way or this way. Pay or not pay. As if there's no other option. People delight in doing that. They love to back you in a corner knowing that with Either answer, either way you go, you're in a mess. Had Jesus said, pay, yes, pay your taxes, then the people would have accused him of endorsing this whole rotten, corrupt system. Had he said not pay, then Jesus wouldn't have died on Friday. He would have died on Tuesday. Because Herod would have had him arrested and he'd have been dead before daylight. They knew it. It's an ingenious question. It was posed at a time that it was going to put Jesus on the spot. Pay or not pay. So Jesus called for a denarius, a Roman coin, and he held it up to him. And he said, whose inscription is on this? And of course, it was the inscription of Caesar. Tiberius was a Caesar at that time. And it was his. Then as now, money was stamped with the name of the issuing authority. And so since Caesar's name was on the coin, since it bore his image technically then, it belonged to him. It's kind of like that money we've all got in our pockets today that we call mine. But if you look at it, it is printed and it says the United States of America. It's ours in the sense that we have it for a while and we can pass it along and use it to pay debts. But that money belongs to the United States of America. Whose image is on it, Jesus said. And then he said, render under Caesar's the things that belong to him. And unto God's. The things that belong to him. Jesus did not make an application of that because it's obvious. It's given to us in Genesis chapter 1 and verse 26 where God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the fowl of the air and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creepeth upon the earth. Let us make man in our image. (laughs) Whose image do we bear? We are made in the image of God. Who made us? God did. Whose image do we bear? God. Who do we belong to? Him. Jesus said, render to Caesar then the things that are Caesar. That's his image on that coin. Render to God the things that are God's. He did answer their question, although not the way they wanted or expected. Render unto Caesar. We won't spend a lot of time today, but there's a passage of Scripture that I think needs to be read because later on, this same issue is going to be developed more fully in the New Testament. 
And it comes into play today in our culture today. Romans chapter 13 and verse 1. Let every soul be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and the authorities that exist are appointed by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authority resists the ordinance of God, and those who resist will bring judgment on themselves. For rulers are not a terror to good works, but to evil. Do you want to be unafraid of the authority? Do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For he is God's minister to you for good. Let me just stop here for a moment and tell you that every policeman in our nation is God's minister to us for our good. Romans 13. But if you do evil, be afraid, for he does not bear the sword in vain. For he is God's minister. Says it twice. An avenger to execute wrath on him who practices evil. Therefore you must be subject not only because of wrath, but also for conscience sake. For because of this, you also pay taxes. For they are God's ministers attending continually to this very thing. Render therefore to all their due. Taxes to whom taxes are due. Customs to whom customs. Fear to whom fear. Honor to whom honor. Uh, I know we read that passage of Scripture and you'll think the same thing I think. You know, a lot of our tax dollars are wasted. I think that too. I wish I could tell you that every dime that we pay in taxes is used in a, as it should be used and there's none of it wasted, none of it going to corrupt causes or bad causes. I can't tell you all that. But this Bible tells us to pay our taxes. Why? Because one of the things it does for us is it pays for our soldiers. It pays for our police officers. And they are worthy of our support because they're God's ministers. You say, well... How much of your taxes goes toward them? From where I sit, I just convinced myself just about all of my tax money goes to them. <laughs> uh, I, know that's, I know that's foolish. Y'all don't even get that. I'm, I'm sorry. It's just something I tell myself, you know. I know it all goes in the same big pot and it all. I, I know all about that. Listen, we can't solve all those things today. All I can tell you today is what the Bible says. There's not everything that our government does is bad. It does a lot of good, and this is at least a part of it. No matter what is said in our country today, I don't want to live in a nation where there are no policemen. Not me. <clears throat> Jesus didn't give the Romans or the Herods, though, the time of day. He went after the corrupt worship. He went after the hearts of people. It's an important distinction for us to remember because I believe that we should work hard to elect all the Christian people to governmental office that we probably can't, possibly can. And I want Christian people in public office because they bring the power of the Holy Spirit and the truth of Scripture to bear on the political process. I think our nation is better off if we are led by God-fearing Christian people who honor the Bible and who believe in the Lord Jesus Christ.
While that is true, I also know that there's only one power that changes the hearts of people, and that is the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, they brought this problem of this corrupt taxation system to Jesus. And they were saying, pay or not pay, are you going to endorse this or are you going to confront it? And we've seen Jesus' answer. But in a way, I think Jesus answered this issue before he ever got to Jerusalem. Because you see, when he was passing through that ancient city of Jericho, down, way, way down in the Jordan River Valley, before he ever turned up and started up the mountain to climb up high, 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 high into the city of Jerusalem, while he's passing through that city of Jericho, thronged by the crowds, There was a guy who couldn't see because he was short of stature and he climbed up in a tree to see Jesus. And Jesus went home with him that day and that man named Zacchaeus, very famous guy, ended up being saved that day. And what was Zacchaeus? A publican. What did that publican say after he got saved? I'm glad you asked. Verse 8 of Luke chapter 19. Look, Lord, I give half my goods to the poor. And if I've taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. Not only would he pay back everything he had taken from people by dishonest gain, but he would pay them fourfold in interest. Four times what he had taken. Wow. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he also is a son of Abraham for the son of man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It was a simple cure to that tax problem. If the publicans would get saved, that problem would go away. There's a lesson in that for us to learn. The issue of taxes. Then they brought the issue of the resurrection. Because we're already running short of time. I won't read all this. It's there for you uh, in our our screen. It is a story that probably you're familiar with. A group of Sadducees then came. The Sadducees were religious people. Unlike the Herodians, they were still religious. But they were very liberal. They'd been influenced uh, by the Greek culture and philosophy around them, and they had bought into a lot of their culture to the point that they did not believe there was a resurrection from the dead. They believed in an afterlife, like the Greeks very famously did. I mean, they thought a lot about the afterlife, but they did not believe in a bodily resurrection, so that once your body died, it went to the ground. that was it. And uh, the Sadducees had bought into that. They denied that there was a resurrection from the dead. And so they brought up this story. Here's a lady who got married, and they didn't have any children. Her husband died and left her childless. Under the Roman, or the, not the Roman, under the biblical law, the law of Moses, God had implemented something known as the law of the kinsman redeemer. What that meant was that if a woman died, or a man died, and his wife left, and he left his wife childless, then a brother or another near kinsman would marry that woman and raise up, as the Bible says, a seed or progeny uh, to his brother. You see, the land uh, did not pass through women. Sorry, ladies, this was just the law. I didn't make it, just reporting it. 
and, and so it passed. They had to have a child in order for that land to continue in their family. It's very important because that was God's heritage to them. God implemented the law of kinsman redeemer. So this played out seven different times according to the Sadducees' story. It was just a story they made up. And at the end of that time, they said, Now in the resurrection, whose wife is that woman going to be? Because she was married to seven uh, different brothers. I can only imagine how many times they'd argued about this. And I'm sure some of them would say, Well, of course, she'll be the wife of the first husband she had. But then somebody else would say, Well, no, no, she's going to be the wife of the last husband she had. They would do this in order to heap scorn upon the whole idea of the resurrection from the dead. But Jesus responded, Are you not therefore mistaken, verse 24, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? When they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like angels in heaven. Notice quickly this morning that Jesus pointed to the authority of Scripture, which referred, of course, to the Old Testament, but it would apply just as well to the New Testament Scriptures today. There is no issue of greater significance than of life after death. And Jesus then pointed our attention to the Scriptures as the ultimate authority. And He tells them that they were wrong for a very simple reason. They didn't know the Bible. Had they known the Bible, they would have known the answer to this. And the the answer was that marriage was not uh, for the afterlife. Marriage was not for when we go to heaven. Marriage is for the here and now. That's when people marry. That's when people have children and offspring. That's not for the heavenly realm. Uh, That's for the here and now. He mentioned, did not say that we become angels. That's a myth. Uh, He said that we're like the angels, like the angels in the sense that the angels never married because the angels were 100% devoted to the worship of God and the obedience of Him. They, they, They never married. And so marriage is for this day and time, for this life, and not for the life that is to come. Jesus was standing before people who denied the authority of Scripture because it contradicted the prevailing mentality, what we call conventional wisdom. They didn't like the whole idea of the resurrection because the world they lived in made a mockery of the idea of bodily resurrection. Every day you and I live in a world that has denied Uh, the truth of Scripture, and the authority of Scripture. They don't know the Bible, and therefore they don't know the God of the Bible. Uh, They don't know about who God is. They don't know how powerful God is. To put it simply, they don't know who they're dealing with when it comes to God. Why? Because they've rejected the truth of Scripture. Every day in our life, we see the efforts of big media and big tech and Internet communications of all kinds to censor and suppress the truth of Scripture. Now, you can quote Karl Marx, and that's all right. You can quote Stalin, that's all right. You can quote Buddha and Confucius and Muhammad all you want to, that's all right. But when you start naming the name of Jesus Christ and quoting His words, there's a strong effort in our culture to shut you down. 
One of the great issues that we're going to face in the next few decades, and already are facing it now, is does the Word of God and the name of Jesus have a place in public discourse? Can you stand up in public? I'm not talking about in here. I'm talking about in public. And talk about Jesus. Mention the truth of Scripture without getting shut down or shouted down. You see, the Scriptures and the power of God go together because Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that the Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's why the culture works so hard to suppress the truth of Scripture. Why? Because it's powerful. Listen, you and I don't have to make the Word of God powerful. The Word of God is powerful. All we have to do is turn it loose. It does what it has always done. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. So when Jesus speaks to this group of people, He said, you're all messed up because you don't know what the Bible says and you don't know about the power of God and no truer word could be spoken to the United States of America today than those words. So many people are so messed up because they don't know the Word of God and they don't know the power of God. And we don't need to just sit here in this place and point our fingers out there as if it's all out there because the same thing can happen right in here. It can happen to you. And find yourself in a mess because you don't know the Bible. And if you have to say, well, I don't know the Bible real well, <laughs> you need to learn. I'll be glad to help you. Oh, please give me a chance. Let's, let's, let's find a way. We'll have to fight to, to make the time, but we can do it. It's worth it. We need to learn what the Scripture says. Adrian Rogers perhaps said it best. He said, we read other books, but when we read the Bible, it reads us back. He points out then, again, that marriage, which includes that whole issue of sexuality and reproduction, are not for eternity. Marriage is for here. Now, I get asked, asked all the time, well, will we know one another in heaven? Folks, we'll know one another better in heaven than we ever have. Will we love one another in heaven? We will love one another more than we ever have. But the marital relationship is for the here and now. That's why the Bible speaks of His people, the people of God, the people of Jesus Christ, under the imagery of the bride of Christ. You see, we'll... Be joined to Him. Doesn't mean we won't know each other. We will. Doesn't mean we won't still love each other. We will. Of course we will. Better. Better. It's all wrapped up in what He said when He said to them, Have you not read how that God spoke to Moses and said, I'm the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob? Again, He didn't point out the obvious. But I will. God didn't say, I used to be the God of Abraham. Back when old Abraham was alive, I was his God. No, I am the God of Abraham. I am the God of Isaac. I am the God of Jacob. God's not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You therefore do greatly err. They were not just wrong. They were badly wrong. Because they didn't know the Bible, and they didn't know the power of God. 
bringing all this down to us then today. On Tuesday, before Jesus was arrested on Thursday night and crucified on Friday, he faced the Pharisees, the Herodians, and the Sadducees. The Pharisees, an ultra-conservative, self-righteous group, a completely secular group of politicians, and the Sadducees, who though they were still somewhat religious, had completely embraced the prevailing views of, of the culture and abandoned the truth of the authority of Scripture. They all approached Jesus under the pretense of seeking answers. But all of them were involved in this plot to discredit Jesus and trap Him. So He would say something to get Him arrested and killed. You and I, like Jesus so long ago, face a hostile world full of questions and hidden agendas. Hot topic issues that try to corner us up as God's people. Are you for it or against it? Is it right or is it wrong? Is it this way or is it this way? You've got to be this way or this way. You've got to be one side or the other side. Which side are you on? <laughs> and isn't it interesting that Jesus just waited right through all of that, and what did he say? Who do you belong to? <laughs> Whose image do you bear? You were created in the image of God. Have you given yourself to God? What a question that is. Jesus waited right into the middle of it, and what did he proclaim to him? You are wrong because you disagree with the Word of God. It doesn't matter what anybody's agenda or what their principles are or what it is they're trying to accomplish. What does the Bible say? And when we start speaking the words of Scripture, then the power of God is unleashed with it. <laughs> and they can't stop it. The devil does not have an anti-Bible missile. If he could have shot the Bible down, it would have gone in antiquity long ago. Word of God is powerful. We need to follow Jesus' lead. Yeah, he could have settled all of this mess. He could have gone in Jerusalem and spoke a word. And all those vile Romans would have been dead. But I remind you today, by three o'clock on about three o'clock on Friday afternoon, at least one of those Romans had confessed Jesus Christ as Savior. Had he wiped them all out on Tuesday? Uh-oh. <laughs> you kind of understand what Simon Peter's talking about when he talked about how that the long suffering of God, the long suffering of our Lord means salvation. I'm glad God is long-suffering, so are you. Because every day that this world avoids that cataclysmic judgment of God is one more day for the gospel to preach, be preached. And one more day for people to be saved. So, are we going to let the world box us in? Got to be this way or that way? Whatever these hot topics are. Are we going to let them shout us down? Shut us down? Or will we keep proclaiming the truth of Scripture? The truth of the gospel?